Well, as we continue through Luke chapter 6, as has been read for you this morning, we see, as from last week, our Lord was teaching on life right side up, which is counterintuitive to the nature of human relationships or the nature of human expectations, the way we think life should otherwise go. The Lord here earlier in the sections in what is termed the Beatitudes in verse 20 shows us again what life actually right side up looks like as a disciple, one who follows Christ. And now our text shifts from personal expectations about life or individual experiences of being a kingdom citizen to human relationships as kingdom citizens. In other words, the text is focused on what it means to you as a disciple, what it means for you to live life in human connected relationships as a kingdom citizen, or as maybe we would just say, a disciple. Spurgeon, that is Charles Spurgeon, once wrote of this passage, quote, the conduct of the subjects of the kingdom must not be measured by the manners of others, for they are a people as peculiar as the kingdom to which they belong. So this morning, as we look at this passage, that is what we're dealing with. If we are Christians, that is, this morning, our faith rests solely upon Christ as our Savior and Lord. He is the true object of our faith, and it stands upon Him alone. We would say we are believers, we are Christians, we are disciples this morning. Then this text is to inform, shape, and guide your most difficult human relationships. Important this morning, then, as we procedurally go forward in our time together, how we can handle this text to our greatest benefit, at least as I looked at it this week, what I hope to accomplish with you this morning as we look at this text as to shape, inform, and guide our most difficult human relationships. Important for understanding it is, number one, to define the term enemy. That is, as we would read a text like verse 27, I say to you who hear, that is, those who have come to receive the Word, those who rest upon Christ, love your enemies. Immediately what stands out to me in our time together is the ability to define that term, enemy. That is, who is my enemy? For without a true sense of one's enemy, obviously it would be difficult to show Him love. So I want to take a first few minutes to define the term enemy. Similarly, important for our understanding of this passage that should shape, inform, and guide our most difficult human relationships is the need to define the term love. Again, without a true sense of the meaning of love, obviously it would be difficult for us to discern or to know if we are truly displaying love to our enemy or not. So notice the passage with me then as we procedurally move forward. To handle this entire text of verse 27 down through verse 36 by truly 
kind of handling the controlling proposition of what is here for us in our most difficult relationships, and that is the call to love our enemy. Let's define the term enemy to just get started. The very definition of an enemy, if we were to look up in a dictionary, just simply to say, who is my enemy in this context? It would be this, quote, one that is antagonistic to another. That is the beginning portion of you and your enemy's relationship. It is a relationship whereby one is antagonistic to another. One seeking to injure, overthrow, or confound an opponent. This is the nature of an enemy. They seek to antagonize. They seek to even injure, overthrow, or confound you as an opponent. Now, in the text here, to be fair, clearly what our Lord is addressing in view here is physical harm and persecutions that will come. Various types of persecutions that will come to the disciples, the apostles themselves, as we see lived out the rest of the New Testament and the tradition of the early church history. Many ways in which they died, what they suffered, the hardships they faced, indeed were directly persecution in relationship to their relationship to the Lord. And if we were to move it into this text, however, very few of us in this present context will experience within this age our life lived here. Most of us, the United States is where we'll experience our life lived. We will most likely experience very little physical harm or physical persecution in this age certainly is, is not impossible here in the United States. But nonetheless, percentage-wise speaking, given our government and our situation, it's not impossible, but it is highly unlikely. Now, again, not saying that it can't happen or happen in small pockets, but we're talking about large, widespread, systematic persecution. Again, maybe you disagree. It's very likely. I, I, I would put forward it's unlikely. But that does not cause this text for me, I hope not for you, to fall to the background. Therefore, there's nothing in it for me. It, again, if I look at an enemy, I'm truly looking at someone who is seeking to bring physical harm and injury to me. That seems to be what I'm looking at here in enemy. And I'm suggesting, no, it extends well beyond that sense. So that we wouldn't look at this text and say, it doesn't define, shape, or inform, or guide my relationships with others because I'm not experiencing physical harm from them. So, see, I'm trying to push it beyond that more narrow sense. Though clearly here in this text, the immediate concern will be that many in this text or those who then pass on from this immediate context will indeed experience a physical enemy persecution in a physical manner. However, again, to define enemy, if I could, to you and myself this morning, as disciples of Christ, Christians, seeking, I trust, to be obedient to our Lord's instruction, wherever, in whichever text we look at, seeking by grace to be obedient, to live by faith in His instructions, we will, each and every one of us, experience difficult people and difficult relationships 
which will rival our desire to be obedient to the Lord. We might not simply face, you know, physical harm, but we will, each and every one of us, as though you look at me and say, that's yesterday's news. I already have, or I already regularly do, experience difficult relationships that rival my desire in that relationship to honor the Lord. I would rather act out, lash out, and then a whole number of other responses than be humble, be gracious in that relationship or context. In other words, each of us do have, maybe if, if, if we took kind of the thrust off, maybe the, the, the intense nature of the term enemy, we might not walk around labeling this person in this difficult relationship and this hard interaction I have is like, they are my enemy, right? Nonetheless, if we look at defining enemy as an individual or a relationship that is antagonistic to me, one that seeks to injure me in our interactions in a number of ways, I certainly would see I do have those relationships. And also, at times, we are that person in that relationship. What do I mean? Each of us will experience these difficult human relationships, of which this text is our guide, that are antagonistic and injurious to us in a variety of ways. Can I give you just a couple examples? We will, at some point, or we have, or we do on a regular basis, if we're human, I imagine we have experienced someone in a particular relationship or a web of relationships of which you are a part, either by choice or by force, that is by work and labor force, or by family. One time I asked my neighbor one time, so, so you're related to so-and-so? And oh, yeah. And I said, oh, that's great. And she goes, well, it's family. You can't pick them. So it might even be within the web of your own family. Some of these relationships exist. If I could give you, though, a few examples. One, just normal human interaction. Someone who denigrates your hard work and criticizes you unfairly. Without knowing all the facts, without seeing your hard work, without seeing your contributions, someone within, maybe it's within a managerial's meeting, maybe it's simply within the shift getting together and having a meeting in there, Maybe it's somebody in your office in some other way or relationship that you share with them. Someone comes and denigrates your hard work, criticizing you unfairly. That maybe has happened to us. That is, I guess I haven't walked away saying that person's my enemy. Right, right. So let's kind of step back. But nonetheless, the, the broader sense of the term, an antagonistic relationship that brings harm or injury to me. In a number of ways, someone who denigrates your hard work criticizes you unfairly. 
Have you ever experienced or do you experience, and can this text speak to your experience of someone spitefully speaking about your character to others? Have you ever found out by way of the back door that someone misrepresented you and maligned your motives? Well, this is exactly why he or she said thus. This is exactly what's going on with so-and-so. And then maybe through the grapevine, somehow it trickles around. Someone is spitefully speaking of your character. They know better, in other words. It's not that they're not informed. They are informed. They're maligning my motives. Have you ever experienced injury or harm in that context? Maybe you've experienced, I only have two more. Maybe you've experienced someone passively, aggressively speaking to you. Speaking in such a way that, you know what's going on. I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying, what you're saying. And that if I say it, I sound paranoid because I look crazy. But I know what you're saying, and you know what you're saying, and I share what you mean. And I'm ready to just, have you ever, have you ever had a human interaction like that? That nonetheless is injurious because then you leave and you think, they know that I know what they meant. Well, what am I going to say to it? I can't say anything to it. I look insane. Because they didn't really say, but they said when they were saying. You, they know it, and so do I. Have you ever had that, that confounding experience in a relationship that is maddening? Because you look insane if you bring up the complaint. That's human interaction. It's antagonistic and injurious. One more maybe very natural and human relationship experience we have is someone outright antagonizing you to lose your cool. Someone baiting you. waiting for you to give them the proof they need to legitimize that which they have already stated when they maligned your character to someone else. This is human antagonism. We have experienced it and we have done it. Psalm 64, David describes it thus, those, quote, those who wet their tongues like swords. This is kind of human interaction at, it, at, at some of its verbally, some of its worst. Those who wet their tongues like swords, who, he goes on to say, aim bitter words like arrows. In other words, push buttons. It's not a general something. It's I know what you'd want me to say, and I'm going to say this. Because I know. So I'm aiming it accordingly. The calculation that goes with that, that which brings injury and harm to the hearer, that which was intended to do so. This sense of the broader concept of an enemy. Now, the natural response to such interactions that we all have experienced or we have just been a part of on both ends our natural response to such interaction, and I, and I, and I double, I, I'm underlining 
natural and best in this statement. The natural response to such interaction at best is avoidance and self-protection. That's our best, that, that, that is given in our natural disposition. The best move that we have provided in those instances is one of avoidance of that person or relationship or we have sought self-protection. And maybe those two things interact. We avoid for the sake of self-protection. That is our best natural response. Of course, the worst response naturally goes from there. You know, very negative responses quite naturally. That kind of tick for tack, that word for word, that respond in kind, or we just, you know, raise the interaction to a higher negativity, and then it goes, and it just, and it just keeps escalating until the whole entire thing goes nuclear. That would be the negative. I'm bringing it all the way down to our best natural response would be avoidance for the purpose of self-protection. Now, consider in this, again, how is this text to inform, shape, and guide me as a believer in my most difficult relationships? Well, the best natural respond that we could have in this situation, which I'm putting forward to you, our best natural response is avoidance and self-protection or avoidance for the sake of self-protection. This response makes our obedience to this text impossible. So think, okay, I'm I'm receiving this word from the Lord of what it means to live as a citizen of the kingdom, where, where life, as I perceived it, was thus, and he has clearly, since verse 20, he has changed the paradigm to thus. So now I'm coming to learn what life right side up really means, what it really looks like. And he's been preaching and teaching what it looks like. And for me, the best natural response I could give to a cantankerous, difficult relationship is to avoid it for the sake of self-protection. But look at the text again. Look carefully and see. If this was our best natural response, we need a response that is not natural. Because this natural response cannot be obedient to this text. Notice verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. He goes on to clarify kind of that that same, same statement said another way. Do good to those who hate you. Right? So, so love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Then look at, as he describes these concrete or measurable actions where you can say, okay, great, I'll move it into this broad sense of I love them. Just broadly speaking, something that is kind of unprovable and kind of gives me a safe haven to hide under, right? So I, I, uh, in an umbrella sense, I love them. I could say that clearly with a clear heart or mind maybe, and, and yet I just, the way I love them is I avoid them, and I protect myself. Nonetheless, I'd put forward that I, I love them, because I'm not, whatever it is, would prove that I don't, and that it's fighting them or beating them or screaming at them or hating them on the internet. So, 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 so 
but that's not what he says. Notice how, how that, that, that lacks um, force. Look at verse 28. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And for one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And then the statement of the golden rule, right? And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Parenting 101, right? You start with your little ones. Now, if you want that happening to you, then don't come around here doing that to him. So, 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 right, so it, the ongoing instruction of what it means to live life right side up. Now, let me draw your attention to the idea that avoidance and self-protection cannot show itself obedient to this text because by creating what we would call safe space, safe distance, a good parameter between where I don't let them in and I don't trespass into. By creating these safe spaces or pockets of self-preservation for ourselves, by practicing avoidance, we will not thereby be in proximity to our enemy. We cannot, right? We, we, we've set up the wall. We're inside. They're outside. We set this avoidance parameter. Then let me ask, how then will we, as believers, be within proximity to our perceived antagonist to be able to do good to them? So it's like the best thing I can do is avoid them. The question of the text then, or the burden of proof upon you then, is how then do you do good to them? It can't circle back around by saying, by avoiding them. What's best for them is me doing good to them is me avoiding them. That doesn't count. Technical foul. How do you translatably do act in such a way as to display good to them if you have withdrawn completely away from them? The next one, ask yourself again, with this sense of safe space, proximity, how does this text really challenge that? How does it shape and inform my most difficult relationships. Well, ask yourself, how then, if we create kind of safe space around ourselves through avoidance and self-protection, how do you respond rightly to their spiteful remarks? That's kind of the comment in the passage of slap, sorry. Kind of in the comment of slap that's in the passage. Um, if you look there, um, blessing those, praying for those who abuse you, and then verse 29, to the one who strikes you on the cheek. That is, in a sense, again, not a fight breaking out in, in, in this context. Historically speaking, it was like an open-handed slap for the point of embarrassment and rebuke. So you've been, you've been shamed, in a sense, as it were. The thrust of the point is... There are no grounds for retaliation. That, that's counterintuitive, right? Surely there is grounds for retaliation. He hit me first. I've heard that probably in my house 10,000 times. And it's like, well, you know, they get a sense for justice, right? Like that, that, that's, hey, right? So then they appeal, hey, he, who, to me first, what? 
Like, okay, who did what? Who had it first? So, so again, we kind of work through that, that, that paradigm. Here, maybe we challenge that paradigm to ourselves as we live our lives, to our little ones, as they live out their little community at home. The idea that, one, that there are no grounds for retaliatory strikes against our neighbor. I remember to this day when I was singing this text, I remember a, a friend down the street from me who had a dad that scared me. Uh, maybe you had friends where it's like, I don't want to go in. Maybe his dad's home. I had one of those friends, and he was a very rough and confrontational guy. Uh, when the friend was over, we lived uh, just one house down, but there were large lots. So it was, a, it was a good bit away. And you could hear the dad step out and scream for so-and-so to make his way home. And who even knows what he hadn't done before he left or who knows what. I mean, you're, you're hoping to see him tomorrow kind of feel when he was going home. The license plate on the father, I can still remember it because it just went so well with like who he was in the neighborhood. His, his, his license plate on the front of his RV was Yosemite Sam standing there with a gun. And maybe you've seen it. This is in the mid-80s. Yosemite Sam standing there with a gun, and it read, quote, and again, this is etched into my mind. I, I'm recalling this memory from, well, I don't know, I was probably six. I don't get mad. I get even. Right? That, that was like, and he probably does. Right? It's like, he does. That RV is coming. Move over. You know, that, that sense of, because I'm not going to get mad. The only person that's going to lose in this situation is going to be you, buddy. That, 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 kind of, that kind of vibe that he puts out everywhere he goes. And this is directly what our Lord speaks into. This type of retaliatory approach to life. When someone slaps you, embarrasses you, that is even to the point of publicly shames you in a crowd. I can't believe they said that to me. Don't they know who was there? They knew who was there. All these people, and everyone turned and looked at me. How dare they? That sense of, this took place in a forum. If you've got something to say, you say it this way. And of course, it's not like there's not cultural conventions that are more appropriate than others when you have a disagreement with someone to air out dirty laundry in a community group. It's not the wisest move. It's not even appropriate. Nonetheless, the point here is the response of such or to such is there are not sufficient grounds here, even in this grievous interaction, for retaliatory strike. Look away. That cuts against the grain of our natural tendencies. The final one of the question is this. If what we do which is best for our enemy is we avoid them and we protect ourselves from them, the challenge is then in this particular text, how do we show generosity to them? At some level, we find some situation with an individual who, where they could use a hand. They could use your help. Maybe they've fallen on a difficult set of circumstances. The tendency, the sinful, the flesh-filled tendency is to awkwardly, quietly, at worst publicly, celebrate that outcome. Feel like we have moved above them or been somehow vindicated over them because circumstances that are negative befell them. But the text is saying, in that circumstance, show generosity to them.
by a pattern of avoidance and self-protection, we cannot, hopefully you see here, we cannot abide in obedience to this passage. Obedience to this passage requires a very unnatural response to our enemies. So the second portion then, let's transition into defining the unnatural response that is, that is required. What, what, what is required in that ability to not return strike for strike, to not withhold good from them because they didn't do good to us, to be able to show generosity instead of gleefully celebrate that we are over our enemy in this moment? How do we move from scorekeeping and avoidance to loving This requires something not found within the flesh. Look at the text again of verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Now, to define the term love, which is important here in the text, that we kind of do our best to get this right so that we can handle, okay, I got probably each one of us in here um, has a relationship um, right now in, in, in mind's eye, maybe we have a whole web of relationships in the, in, in, in the network of our mind right now where we think, okay, how does this text shape, inform, and guide my most difficult relationships? It's telling me to love them. That just doesn't seem possible. W- 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 what is here? Okay, so in this scope, let me help with this thought that the New Testament, within the scope of the New Testament, there are different terms for the different forms which love takes. The term here, used here by our Lord, is a term agape. Why is that significant? Just let me give you kind of the scope or the, the, the semantic range, the broadened scope of the term agape, so that we can understand what does it mean to love my enemy? What, what is this that I, that I am called to do? Agape is concerned less with emotional affection. Agape is concerned less with emotional affection, which is primarily in these relationships where we as humans go, in emotional spaces, emotional responses. But agape is concerned less with emotional affection than with willing service and the desire to do good to the other person. In other words, emotions tend to reflect a certain reality on the ground, right? So you're slapped and you slap back, or you apologize in this way, well, my emotions got the best of me. Emotions tend to reflect a certain reality. They're responsive or reflexive almost, whereas a desire, that is willing service and the desire to do good to the other person, desire can see that reality and seek to change it by actions. Instead of being reflexive, that's the, 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 boom, boom, tick for tack, comment for comment, Facebook post to Facebook post. It's it like, oh yeah, you got that one? I got that one. Oh, easy, easy. Well, I can't, I, I feel this way. Fine, granted. Feelings, part of being human. However, it's unwise to act on them emotionally right away. 
right? It, it's rather, but agape is saying, but love them, love them. How? They make me feel weight. What about a willingness to serve them from a desire to do good to them? That is, to want the reality that is on the ground now to change. Like, I, I, I don't want this interaction always to be this way. I don't want this relationship to always go that route. You see, you know it and I know it. In human interactions, we may not be able to control how we feel about someone. It just, it just is. I feel this way about this person. I feel this way about these interactions. I feel this way about these relationships. I feel this way. And, and, and by a number of reasons, psychological, constitution, personality, place in life, so on and so forth, we may not be able to control how we feel about someone. But by divine enabling grace, we can act lovingly toward that person or relationship and bring glory to God. We can. That is, we may not know how we're able to control how we feel, but desire seeks to change that reality by acting out toward that person in the context of that relationship with divine enabling grace in order to see what is presently the reality begin to change. This is the call of our Lord. Love your enemies. Now, this kind of desire to do good to this person who's harming you or this relationship, the desire to even see it change, to put in the kind of effort and work that it takes to see a relationship like that, even begin, like let's say in the next decade, move from this to this. Not like, you know, hey, I, you know, I responded kindly. Great, we're all friends. It's more like th- this, this level of hard work, this level of sacrificial time and commitment, surely you agree, is not natural to us. Loving someone who doesn't really particularly love you back is costly, it's hurtful, it's sacrificial, it requires divine enabling grace. Let me show you how that is the case. Look quickly as we, conti- as we kind of wind down our time now, how Jesus makes this clear, that this is not a natural response, but it has provided you If indeed you're a believer, if you're a disciple, if you're a Christian, it is being provided you. Notice how he makes it clear that this is not natural. Verse 32, setting in contrast what he's asking you, the believer, to do with what is very natural. Verse 32, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Now, now, here's how he clarifies 
how your life as a believer is to be in stark contrast in those difficult contexts to those who are not. He peppers these statements across from verse 32, for even sinners. That's your underlining portion in your text. This is the great contrast. For even sinners love those who love them. He moves on, and if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners, the second time he repeats it, he's putting it under one ground, one foundation of contrast. People apart from belief do that. People apart from grace do that. Even sinners do that. Verse 34, and if you lend to those whom you expect to receive, what credit is that? Even sinners lend to fellow sinners to get back the same amount. You see, the love shown by God's people, those who hear, verse 27, I say to you who hear, to you who have come, who have received of me, who rest solely upon me, who are Christians. The love that is to be shown by you is a love that is supplied you by divine enabling grace. How so? Verse 35. But love your enemies. Right? In contrast to these people who are not loving. Love your enemies, do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. That will be proofs. You will be bearing fruit. Now, here's the grounds of of how that will work through you and your relationship to God. For He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful in that relationship, in that negative interaction, in that bad posting. Be merciful. Upon what grounds, what power for even as your Father is merciful. You belong to God. What motivates the life of loving generosity for a disciple, for a Christian this morning? What motivates your day tomorrow in that web of negative relationships? What prevents you from posting online against them? The loving generosity of God toward you in Christ Jesus. That's what motivates you to not do that. That's what motivates you to love them. It's because while you were a sinner, Christ died for you. In conclusion, then, simply this. Think of the best thing you can do for the worst person. So you have somebody in your mind, don't you? Hopefully, everyone say, no, I don't have any relationships like that. Think of the best thing you can do for the worst person and go ahead and do it. Think of the people to whom you are tempted to be nasty and lavish generosity on them instead. Why? Why? For moral superiority? Is our Lord providing us a checklist here at the end of a good moral day, give ourselves a high five? 
so I can lord over them one more time? No. Because this is what Jesus has done for you. Grace motivates gratitude. He gave his life for those in need of it. He didn't show love only to his friends. He didn't have any. But he displayed love toward his enemies, of whom each and every one of us were. This, our Lord says, is the shape of kingdom relationships. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for the call to love our enemies.